Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We pretty well know the kids in our neighborhood, and very small, little blonde-headed kids came to the door, and with all the seriousness that they could muster, they looked up at Terry and said, We're just out spreading the word. Terry said, about what? He said, Batman's at the mall. <laughs> and we're just out spreading the word. <laughs> Batman's at the mall. <laughs> I wonder if children knocked on doors at the time of Christ and said, we're out spreading the word. Jesus is in town. Don't you know that people that had been healed out of the multitudes, that we do not have the individual accounts, but we know that he healed many people, he touched many lives. Don't you know that of all the lives that he touched, people just went out spreading the word. They would spread the word that Christ had touched their life. There was a difference when Jesus came to town. And tonight we're going to see three people who pressed through the crowd, who pressed through their circumstances, who pressed through the cultural alienation that they felt to come face to face with Jesus. For the demoniac, Jesus was a deliverer. For the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus was going to be a healer. And for Jairus' daughter, he was going to be the resurrection and the life. But for all of them, he was one thing. He was the last chance and the best hope that they had. If there was going to be any hope, and if they had any chance, it was going to be summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And they came to him desperate. Jesus and the disciples got out of the boat. We read this passage a few weeks ago in talking about the healing miracles of Jesus. And the demoniac came running over the hill, this man who had been living in a cemetery, and came running mad and crazy over the hill, uh, screaming and shouting and cutting himself. I'm sure the disciples thought that he was a youth minister who had been on one too many lock-ins. But we know now he was just demon-possessed. There are three individuals that I want you to see. One is that he rescues the demoniac. Now, instead of focusing on the demoniac tonight, I want to draw some uh, principles or some truths out of this passage that relate to how Jesus relates to people. Because this is one instance, but there is a common principle and a common theme that runs through the life of Christ as we think about how he relates to people. The first one is Jesus always goes where he's needed. He always goes where he's needed. He went and he found the living among the dead. The man was living in a graveyard, a man that everybody else avoided, but he needed Jesus. And Jesus got in the boat and went to the other side, and I believe he did it because he knew that there was a man there that had no hope apart from him. He didn't stay in those areas that were convenient and comfortable. The second lesson I see is that Jesus exercises spiritual authority. 
He exercises spiritual authority in that He has come to set the captive free. It is the desire of the heart of God to free men from their bad choices, from their wrong decisions, and from the things that wreck their lives. Jesus has spiritual authority to deal with the needs of people. The third thing I see is that Jesus is competent to deal with any situation or any difficulty. There's nothing beyond him. They had tried to chain this man up. They had tried to control him. They had tried to legislate him to a cemetery. They had tried to ostracize him. They had hoped that they could ignore him. But Jesus was able to deal with what was to them an impossible situation and make this man possible to live with. Number five, number four, Jesus has compassion on those we lack compassion for. Jesus has compassion on those we lack compassion for. You see, the only person that loved this man was Jesus. Nobody else loved him. They had refused to love him. They had cast him out. And we are most like Christ when we love the unlovely. When we reach out to those who are not like us and don't act like us or talk like us and don't fit in our comfort zones, it's easy for us to love people who are like us or who like us. But Jesus has compassion on those that we lack compassion for. Number five, Jesus always finishes what he starts. Verse 15 says, They observed the man who had been demonized sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. There's every indication in the text that this man wasn't able to sit down, lie down, sleep, that he was so under the possession of the demonic that he could not rest. And that he was naked. He couldn't keep clothes on. He would tear them off himself. And now they find him sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. Jesus saves people and he brings about a complete transformation of life. Not only from the consequences of sin, but from the power of sin as well. He finishes what he starts. Know this, anything Jesus starts, he completes. He never stops halfway through anything. If God births it, He brings it to maturity. Number six, Jesus draws out a variety of responses. I am amazed as I read this account in verses 1 through 20 of Mark 5 that this man became devoted, and yet the people of the city see one that has been delivered, one that they have rejected, and one that has frightened them, and now he has been set free, and they reject Jesus. Now, they tell Jesus to go away and stay away. Here's what they did. They chose swine over the Savior. They were mad because they lost their pigs. They would have rather kept their pigs than to have this man set free. Doesn't that say something about the priorities? Jesus draws a variety of responses, and they said, Jesus, why don't you just leave here? And there is no record that he ever came back. People respond to Christ in a variety of ways. But then I like the seventh one because Jesus commissions the most unlikely disciples. He commissions the most unlikely disciples. I, I, I tell you, some of the missionaries and some of the disciples that Jesus has chosen, we wouldn't choose. We'd think there's something wrong. We would, we would think they don't 
clean up like we want them to. They don't have the finesse that we want them to have. They don't have all the stuff. that we, We've got this outer image, and yet God looks on the heart. Jesus chooses the most unlikely disciples. And this man, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind now says, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. Now, there are three requests made in this chapter. This is the only one that Jesus denies. Jesus tells him, you can't go with me. I'm going to leave. They don't want me around, but I want you to stay as my witness. And so here's what happened. There was a desire denied. There are three things that happened in this choosing of an unlikely missionary. There was a desire denied. The man was entreating him that he might accompany him. But Jesus said, no, you can't go with me. And so after he denied the desire of this demoniac, there was a duty described in verse 19. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now, right by verse 19, you ought to write this little note. The healed, delivered demoniac was the first missionary to the Gentiles. Before Christ ever went to the cross, he went to this region which had Gentiles in it and he became a missionary of what God had done. He said, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. <clears throat> so he told him to do two things. He said, go and show and go and tell. Go and show them what I have done for you and go and tell them what I have done for you. This is the first account of Jesus sending someone to tell the Gentiles that the Lord had done something in their lives. And then there's a third thing that the duty described led to a disciple determined. In verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. There was a disciple determined. He shared his testimony. He didn't know systematic theology. He didn't know how to argue the, the scriptures. He didn't know how to defend his faith. He just knew that he had once been a crazed man and now he had his right mind. And really that's all we need to know. So once we were lost and now we've been found. Your testimony is always effective. The second thing is that Jesus responds to the distressed. I like this story. One of the first messages I ever preached, I preached on the woman with the issue of blood. And I, and I love this story uh, for so many reasons because it is such an insight into the life of Christ. This is a parenthetical miracle. Jairus comes first, but the woman with the issue of blood is going to be healed first. Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. But this woman is a nobody. Jairus has a problem with fear and with sorrow. But this woman has a problem with pain and with shame because she's an outcast because of this issue of blood. Jairus is about to lose his daughter, but this woman's about to lose her life. Jairus is a wealthy man. He's a high official. This woman has nothing to offer Christ. She's bankrupt. Now, I want you to see in verse 25 her condition. Her condition in verse 25 is described this way. The woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much 
at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now the Levitical law said that if a woman had a hemorrhage, an issue of blood, and it would not stop bleeding, that she was unclean and that she could not enter the synagogue, that she was forbidden from worship, she had to stay away. Twelve years, this woman had been forbidden from worship. She was dying a slow, painful, agonizing death. And she reaches out to touch Jesus. She has an incurable disease. Now, I don't know why she reached out to touch Jesus. I don't even know why she was there that day. She was not supposed to be there. She was not supposed to be in the presence of people because they didn't know what to do with somebody like that. Maybe she remembered the account in 2 Kings with the lepers who were sitting by the gate. When the city was under siege and they were by the gate of Samaria and they said to themselves, why sit here until we die? If we go over there and the Syrians kill us, we're going to be dead. If we stay here until the Syrians come, we're going to be dead. If the Syrians don't come, we've got leprosy and we're going to be dead. So any way it goes, it can't get any worse than what it is right now. Let's go see if we can find some food in the camp. Maybe God brought to mind in this woman that if you get desperate enough, you'll do anything. This woman had to get desperate enough that she would step out. Now you see... She may not have known all of who Jesus was, but she knew some way that there was power in Jesus. And she said, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. Maybe she brought to mind Isaiah chapter 42 verse 3, which says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I mean, for this lady, all hope was gone. Doctors couldn't do anything for her. She had been to every clinic and every doctor and every hospital of that time, and they couldn't do anything for her. They said, there's no hope. She was down to her last hope, which was her best hope, and that was Jesus. Her condition was she had an issue of blood. Her cure is described in verse 28. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, if you just want to write a little note by verse 29, Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 and 39, is a reference to the fact that the tassel and the fringe of the garment was to remind people of God's promises and God's commands. And so her faith was aroused. Her hope was awakened. If she had been raised in the church at all, she would have known those scriptures in the book of Numbers that would relate to the fact that what the tassels and the fringes would relate to, and that would be the commandments of God. And so in reaching out and touching the hem of the garment, here's what she was thinking. If I can touch the hem of his garment, I can lay hold and lay claim to every promise and every command that God has given and so by touching the garments, not that anything was mystical about the garments, not that it was a prayer cloth or anything like that, it's just that it represented all the commands, all the promises, all the power of God. And her cure was affected. And then there was a confession. Jesus said, who touched me? Who touched me? 
And you know the disciples, they thought that was a stupid question. They said, how can you say who touched me when all these people throng you? I think it's interesting that as Mark writes this account, he uses two different words. The disciples didn't say, Lord, how can you say that when all these people are touching you? He said, how can you say that when these people are thronging you, pressing in on you, squeezing in on you, grabbing at you, trying to get your attention, screaming for you, trying to hold on to you? You see, Jesus knew all that was going on, but this touch took power out of him. He said, I perceive that power has gone out of me. You know, that happens a lot of times when we come to church. We come and people throng Jesus, but very few people touch Him. Very few people draw on the power of God, and He wants this woman to reveal Himself. And so He asked that question, Who touched me? And it says in the text, She told Him all the truth. I mean, this lady just unpacked her heart. She said, well, if you really want to know, I'll tell you. And so she unburdened herself. She unloaded and she unpacked her heart and shared with Jesus. And Jesus was so impressed by this that he called her daughter. It's the only time he ever used that term. A term of compassion. A term of love. He didn't turn around to anybody else that touched him that day. But he turned around to her and called her daughter a loving word, and he said, I'm going to heal you. She pressed through to Jesus. Have you ever noticed how we let the crowd block us? Blocks our vision. It distorts our perspective. And we fail to press through and, and touch Jesus. But the Gospels record that those that went to the greatest pains to be in the presence of Jesus got the greatest blessings. And you just think about it. Zacchaeus went to great effort because he wanted to see Jesus. A lot of people there that day, thousands of people there that day. But guess who Jesus went home and had lunch with? Zacchaeus. Bartimaeus, a lot of people lined up on the road. It was common for people that needed healing and for beggars and for blind people to sit outside the, the gates of Jericho. It was a common thing. No big deal. There would have been dozens and dozens of others out there. But Bartimaeus cast everything aside and said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He got his sight that day. I'm sure some of those lepers and Blind people sat by the road and said, Well, you know, the crowd's thick. I'll, I'll go another time when it's more convenient for me. The only thing they didn't know, that when Jesus came by and he healed Bartimaeus, that was the last time he was going to be in Jericho because he was on his way to the cross. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. You look in the Gospels and you read the accounts of people who came to Jesus, and the ones that paid the greatest price got the greatest blessings. The ones that grabbed hold and had a sense of desperation and a desire that was inbuilt in their hearts that they wouldn't let go and they would overcome any obstacle to get in the presence of Christ. These were the people that God blessed. Now, this lady could have been fined. She could have been imprisoned. She could have been put to death. But her distress led her to desperation and that led her to the Savior. And she grabbed hold of Him and she touched Him. And she was cured. And she made a confession. She said, Lord, I'm the one that touched you.
I wonder if anybody's going to leave church today having touched Jesus. Oh, we'll come in and out. We'll be busy and we'll throng in and out. And we'll fight to get out of the parking lot as quick as we can and we'll be gracious and let one car ahead of us but forget two. But I wonder if anybody's going to take the time to just get a touch of Jesus today. Or will we come and pay our respects and go through the motions and do our little perfunctory duties and check our envelopes and go home and for all practical purposes we're the same as when we got up this morning. You see, every time we come to worship it ought to be an encounter with God. We ought to be touched by Jesus and we ought to touch Him. We ought to reach out in desperation knowing that God wants to do something in our lives when we gather together for worship. This little parenthetical miracle is, happens with a distressed woman. Now, you've got to remember, he's on his way to Jairus' house. And so there's the raising of the dead, and that begins in verse 22, and then we pick it up at the, toward the end of the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon him, seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him or begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. Now drop down to verse 35. All of this with the healing of the woman has happened in verse 25 and on. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, speaking to this woman, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus overheard what was being spoken and said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them out... He took along the father's child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said, Little girl, get up right now. Now she's dead. Tells her to get up. Arise. Get up. Jesus is speaking to the dead and immediately the girl arose and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately... They were completely astonished. Now, a little background. If you remember when we started the study in Mark just a few weeks ago, we're already now in chapter 5, we're almost a third of the way through it. But when we started that study, Jesus began his ministry in the synagogues, but he is at this point cast out of the synagogues. They don't want him there anymore. But Jairus is one of the rulers, one of the synagogue officials, and he remembers... Jesus, and he takes his prestige and his power and his position and he lays it all on the line because he knows there's nothing in the synagogue that can help his daughter. There's only one person. He gets down to the point where his daughter is dying and he does not go to the priest or to the high priest. He does not go to anybody else. He goes straight to Jesus. He remembered Jesus and he went to him. You see, death levels us all. 
There are no distinctions in death. It strikes everybody. It takes the rich and the poor. It takes the weak and the strong. It takes the famous or the obscure. And death came knocking at the door of this man's house. But before Jesus could get there, his daughter died. Death had outrun this father. He didn't get there quick enough. Jesus didn't make it on time. Jesus was late. Now, I believe that this man at that point made a major decision because he believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. But now he had to believe that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. But you remember what the messenger said. Why trouble the teacher? Why trouble the master? Why bother him anymore? Your daughter's dead. Come on home and let's make funeral arrangements. But Jesus said, fear not. Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. Now here was the custom of the time. Jesus walked in and these people were wailing and gnashing teeth. And the custom was that the women would scream and the men would moan and chant. And Jesus walks into this room, and, and there were professionals in this society. They had people that they hired to come to your house to wail and to weep when somebody died. Now, can you believe that? So all around this house, these professional mourners, they've all shown up with their business card. Say, so we're here to weep. And we can cry especially loud for 12-year-olds. And Jesus said, what's all this racket going on? She's not dead and they thought, boy, not only is Jesus crazy, not only is he an outcast, not only is he a renegade, he can't figure out when somebody's dead or alive. And they rebuked him, and they turned their sorrow into scorn, and they began to scorn Jesus and laugh at Jesus. But I want to tell you something. Deliverance and derision and doubt will never go together. If you want God to deliver you, you can't deride the way he does it, and you can't doubt that he can do it. God had something he wanted to do, and so I want to leave you with three closing principles that I think this passage teaches us. First of all, in distress, Christ is willing. In distress, Christ is willing. And I see that in verses 21 through 24. Jairus didn't ask for a, a theological discussion on healing in the resurrection. His only daughter was dying. And he comes and humbles himself at a point of distress to see if Christ is willing. And Christ was willing. Christ is always willing to meet us at the point of our distress. Whatever your distress is, God wants to meet you there. The second principle I see is found in verses 25 through 34. And that is, in delay, Christ is working. In delay, Christ is working. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Our Lord is infinite, and His help to one person does not interfere with the help He has promised to another. In delay, Christ is working. His help with one person does not interfere with the help He has promised to another. 
Now, don't you know that when this woman reached out and touched Jesus and he stopped and said, who touched me, and began to carry on this conversation with this woman, don't you know that that dad was sitting there looking at his watch saying, boy, you know, time's wasting here. I mean, let's, you know, he was probably looking around with one of his slaves and saying, hey, can you get us a police escort? We need to get to the house. You see, he thought that Jesus needed to be there for a healing. But Jesus knew he was going to be there for a resurrection. Now, which is better, a healing or a resurrection? Which takes more, a healing or a resurrection? Jesus was delayed, but the delayed only served to magnify the blessing that God was going to give that home. Now, you know this, but it bears repeating. Sometimes the Lord seems slow, but He's always on time. There are times when he delays. There are times when it seems like he is not moving as quickly as we want him to move. But I want you to know in every moment that we think Christ is delaying, he is working. He's not idle. He's not inactive. He's not indifferent. He is working in our midst. And so whatever the delay is, why God has not done what he's told you he wanted to do in your life, he's still working. He's still working. And then thirdly, verses 35 through 43, in disappointment, Christ is watching. In disappointment, Christ is watching. You see, Jesus didn't go to that house to preach a funeral. He went to that house to raise the dead. Jesus saw that servant coming. He heard what that servant said, but he said, Now, Dad, here's your chance. You can cave in. You can give up, or you can believe me. In disappointment, Christ is watching. I believe that every time we get in a crisis, God watches us and how we handle our disappointments. Folks, whether it's financial or physical or anything else, I think God's watching to see. And I think He speaks to each of our hearts, and He says, Now, here's your opportunity. I know you're disappointed. I know this hadn't turned out like you wanted it to. I know everything's not going like you planned it. I know I didn't do exactly what you told me to do. And you got a chance now. You can cave in and you can quit. Or you can quit being afraid and you can believe me. And folks, that's tough. And there's hardly a week that goes by in our lives that something doesn't disappoint us and something doesn't distress us and there's not some delay in our lives. And in every one of those situations, Jesus Christ is saying, Now, are you going to believe me or are you going to cave in? Are you going to give up? Are you going to scream out? Or are you going to confront your fear with faith? How do you and I handle our fears? How do we handle it when the bottom drops out? I know this, God's in the miracle business. And God's in the business of meeting the needs of people. And God is in the business of answering prayers, sometimes not like we want them answered. But God's in the business of taking care of His children. And every time we think He's not taking care of us, we've got a choice. We can cave in, or we can believe but you'll make one of those two choices.
Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.